Welcome and good evening to everyone, to all of you here at KI, to everyone out in podcast land as well. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, here for the final installment of Tales of the Talmud here at KI. So, it's a bittersweet moment to be reaching the end of this journey uh, together. No worries, as uh, Rabbi Bernstein says whenever there's a cell phone interruption, 20 bucks to your favorite tzedakah, your favorite charity, or good cause. <laughs> so... Um, so again, it's, uh, like I said, it's a bittersweet moment to be reaching the end of this journey with all of you, but it has been such a pleasure and such a blessing to be on this road, this journey of learning and Talmud and Jewish thought all this time. So we're going to dig into a story in just a few minutes, but I want to start the way, well, we always start. What is this work we are looking at, this Talmud? What is this thing we are learning, this text we are reading, these stories we are delving into? Who wants to just offer a little bit of what Talmud is for our introduction here. Some of you have been coming for a few times now, so I know some of you actually could tell me a little bit about what the Talmud is. Somebody jump in. Uh, it's the writings of, of the rabbis post-destruction of the temple. Perfect. And it's laws in one book and it's stories in another book. So the Talmud, really so the Talmud is... All of the uh, beginnings of rabbinic Judaism. It follows the destruction of the second temple. It's sort of the end of the priesthood and the transition into having rabbis. It's the end of sacrifice and the beginnings of prayer. And it's figuring out what Judaism is going to look like. The Talmud is 63 volumes, the longest written work in the ancient world. And Susan is correct that it is stories um, legends, myths, fables, all of these mystical rabbinic uh, journeys, and it is laws. What are the rules going to be? It's sort of both here in Tales of the Talmud, we've been covering the stories. Is yeah. it written in Hebrew or Aramaic? Is it written in Hebrew or Aramaic? The answer is yes. <laughs> it is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, depending on where you are in it. Oh. That's absolutely correct. They jump back and forth between languages all the time. And that's partly because the Talmud spans a number of centuries. And it's actually two discrete written works. Does anybody remember what those two written works are? Yeah, go ahead. The Babylonian and the Jerusalem. Okay, so you answered another important question. There are actually two Talmuds. There is the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, and the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. So what was interesting about this time where there were all of these sort of Jewish exilic communities in the east, in Babylonia, in what is today uh, Iraq, um, and they had this whole rabbinic discourse going on, and they had their rabbis going back and forth between there and the land of Israel, where they were also putting together another Talmud. Most of the Talmud that we've learned here is the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, for what it's worth, probably has more recent redactors and editors to it, and so it's easier to read. So while it's easier for us to sort of delve into and get the Hebrew, for those who are scholars of Talmud and trying to get at the original document, they usually use the Yerushalmi or the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, there are, the Talmud itself is two sort of distinct written works. Does anybody remember what these are? Yeah, go ahead. One's the Mishnah. That's absolutely right. The first is the Mishnah, and the Gemara is the other one. Mishnah was redacted in the year 220 CE by Yudah Hanasi, Rabbi Judah, who uh, sealed, canonized the Mishnah, the Gemara then comes afterward and it's a continued series of conversations and uh, commentaries and all of these rabbis all sort of arguing with each other. The Gemara, it's not totally clear when it was canonized, codified, redacted afterward. Scholars think it was in around five or 600 CE. So they're writing from right in around the year zero 
all the way through 600 or so, and it's part of this long, evolving conversation, dialogue, debate between all of these rabbis, and that's what we have in the Talmud. Yeah? It, it, it plays fast and loose with what's contemporaneous. Yes. The rabbis are not doing history. They are doing memory. They are doing stories. And so we have rabbis arguing with one another who we know didn't live within a couple hundred years of one another, but the Talmud doesn't really care. The Talmud is much more interested in the conversation, in the sort of orality of it, in the debate of it. They're not doing history in any kind of Western academic sense. Um, so they play it very fast and loose with the time frames of it, the temporality of it. As they say in Torah, Ein mukdam Torah. there's no such thing as early or late in the Torah. And the rabbis really live into that uh, reality within their imagination. Other, yeah, go ahead. In the early days of the Talmud, yeah. what made one be a rabbi or not be a rabbi? In the early days of the Talmud, what defined a rabbi? What made one a rabbi? Generally speaking, rabbis became rabbis by virtue of having studied with rabbis that came before them. And so you have these rabbinic dynasties and uh, lineages. And so you'll oftentimes see rabbis quoting in the name of another rabbi. They're sort of citing their lineage in that way, where it is that they come from, that chain of transmission. There were famous schools Within Talmudic writing, one of the most famous is if anybody's heard of Hillel and Shammai, who were these very early sages who had these great debates with one another. Usually we follow what Rabbi Hillel says, every now and then what Rabbi Shammai says, but that's an example of two sort of competing Jewish schools early on. Yeah, they were actually schools. Um, Batei Midrash, these study halls uh, that they would give this legacy from. Other comments about the Talmud? Anything I might have missed at this point? Yeah. You said that it was written in 220 and about 600. But yeah. It's the oral Torah, so it's the oral yes. tradition. Thank so, you, Grant. Um, I mean, it was was 220 when 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 the when the all the all the teachings and all the all the conversation was 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 finally put down, and why was it put down? Okay. Great questions here. The Talmud, i.e. the Mishnah and Gemara, the Mishnah being the one that was finished in 220, the Gemara finished around five or 600. The whole thing makes up the Talmud. That's also called the Oral Torah. And the reason for that was originally, this was a set of conversations going on. This wasn't written down in its original form. And you get the orality of it um, in these stories. We're going to see here this debate. You can imagine a whole bunch of guys, and I say guys because it was largely a male endeavor, a male elitist endeavor, not for nothing. But these guys all gathered around saying, oh, I heard it was uh, 100 cubits. No, I heard it was 400 cubits. You get the sense that it was a, it was a conversation more than it was a written treatise in this way. Why was it written down? It was probably written down in as much as Talmud and the creation of the Talmud is the creation of Judaism as we have it today. It is rabbinic Judaism. You can make the argument, um, I've heard Rabbi Bernstein make it, I'll make it for argument's sake today, that what we had before the Talmud was really ancient Israelite worship. It was the ancient Israelites, and that's distinct from what we would call Judaism today. That Judaism, as we have it inherited today, is a function of the Talmud, is a function of having written down all of these rules and created all of these rituals and all of these laws and all of these standards for what Judaism would be today. A great example of this that I like is uh, Passover, particularly meaningful because it's coming up. The Torah tells us... Uh, that you should tell the story of Passover to your children and experience it as if um, your generation had left Egypt themselves. That's what they say to do about Passover. That's it. How do you do that? 
Well, the rabbis dive right in in the Talmud. They say, I know, this is really early on in the Mishnah, they say, four cups, four cups of wine. That's how we'll do that. And there is the very beginnings of the architecture of the Passover Seder. There's no Passover Seder in the Torah. The Passover Seder is what gets fleshed out when the rabbis are telling each other this story and sort of unpacking this all and figuring out, okay, what's the mechanism by which we're going to follow this Torah commandment? Yeah. So how do we get the story that the so it could have been a very early iteration of a Passover Seder because again the Mishnah was redacted in 220 but the rabbis were also figuring this out in and around that time there were early rabbis who were in the process of escaping Jerusalem escaping the destruction of the Romans this whole project the earliest days are contemporary with that and clearly the rabbis had some awareness of Jesus now we also understand today there are a lot of contemporary Christians that want to go to Passover Seders to do what Jesus did. <laughs> yeah, Jesus probably didn't exactly do that. But uh, it's this idea that I think sort of gets uplifted as it was it related to Passover in some kind of banquet and some kind of Passover telling probably was it a historical Passover Seder as we have received and as we do them now probably not um, so it's probably something in between because this was that same era of creativity of generativity of um, Jewish of the Jewish project essentially please go ahead I go a mile a minute sometimes please <laughs> yeah so yeah go ahead when you see the Talmud today, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, that the center part of a page is from the Mishnah, and then around it is the Gemara. So they're not separate volumes? Sort of. Well, what they'll do is they'll lay out the Mishnah part, and then they'll have Gemara following it, and those together will be in the center part. And then around the margins, you'll have... Uh, explication. You'll have Rashi first in the interior part of it. Rashi being a French rabbi from, uh, I believe, the 1100s who went and read the entire Talmud and produced his own commentary on the entire Talmud. And so you see him in the margins of every page. And then on the outside, you have a lot of notes and commentary on uh, what is Jewish law today? Because Jewish law has actually evolved past the Talmud in our era. Um, one great example of this I love to give is Kashrut, the kosher laws. Um, in the Talmud, well, for instance, uh, let me even take a step back. In Torah and Hebrew Bible, we have all of this stuff saying that uh, do not cook a calf in its mother's milk. Well, what does that mean, functionally? So the rabbis take that and say, okay, you're not supposed to mix milk and meat and cook them together. That said, the rabbis also say that if you have a meat stew and you drop milk in it, as long as it's less than 1 60th of the total volume of the meat stew, it's still kosher. I don't know how many uh, contemporary Orthodox rabbis would be cool with you dumping, you know, spilling your milk in a meat stew. I don't know that that would pass muster anymore, let alone places that have separate <laughs> kitchens and separate dishes and all of that stuff. That, all of that is much newer than the Talmud. Um, the idea of even having a separate kitchen for these uh, Jews of antiquity who were in the Talmud at this time, that would have been sort of absurd. You probably had your one pot and you would apply heat to it to render it uh, fit to make it milk or meat or whatever to sort of clean it out again, and that would be that. So these things have also evolved a long way from the Talmud, but the Talmud tends to be the source of a lot of that conversation. Other questions? Well, we're talking about what is the Talmud. We pretty much covered at this point. Did I cover your piece about the uh, sort of it being written down in order to create this uh, project going forward? So the Talmud very much is 
You can think of it as picking up the pieces after the unimaginable catastrophe of the destruction of the Israelite temples, way of life, relationship with God, all of that, and figuring out what this almost, what the daughter religion of that Israelite faith would be, which is Judaism, trying to figure out what that would be. The rabbis were the creators, the authors of this new vision of what Judaism would be. So it it's tremendously creative. It's tremendously uh, generative. It's imaginative in certain ways. So... The reason that we're not just doing this as an abstract history class, as this thing that is this dusty, closed, monolithic tome, um, is that I believe it has what to tell us about the world we live in today. So, for this, our last session of Tales of the Talmud, this is going to be a homecoming of sorts. We're actually going to return to the very first story we read here in Tales of the Talmud. So, if it's been a while... Um, some of you may remember this. Some of you may not. This may be the first time for you, but I think this story, perhaps more than any other, says something to us about the world we live in today. So I have a bunch of copies of this. I'm going to send this side here. I'm going to send one. Ooh, we're going to need more on this side if you can pass me um, just a couple to send this way and then send some back there too. Um, we're going to have everyone's going to pass these out, take one, pass them around. And we're going to learn, we're going to read this in a style of learning called Chevruta. It comes, it's an Aramaic construct coming from the Hebrew word Chaver for friend. The way that people traditionally learn Talmud is by sitting and learning, reading it aloud with someone, with uh, one other person. So I would invite you to turn to one or two other people, it can be one or two, um, to read this aloud. Uh, I'm going to invite you all to get into your chevrutot and read this aloud. Just take one first pass at it. Don't worry if you don't understand what's going on. It's really weird. I totally own that. Talmud has some of the most difficult texts that exist within Jewish civilization. But just take this moment, read it aloud with someone else, make a first pass at it. If you have questions, I'll circulate a little bit too. And then after we do our chevruta study, we're going to come back together as a full group and we're going to have a close reading of it. And this is where we'll really get at the at the, the meaning at the at the meat of it. So don't worry if it's confusing in this first pass. Ready, get set, go. Back from our chavrutot, back to the text as a big group. We get a brave volunteer to take a sentence. Just read aloud for us. We're gonna all read together. Yep. We learned elsewhere of one cut an oven into separate tiles, placing sand between each tile. Rabbi Eliezer declared it clean, and the sages declared it unclean. Very good. So, this oven that we're talking about, this whole thing starts with a conversation about whether or not this thing is clean or unclean. This oven is kosher or not kosher. I'm just going to draw, you'll forgive my drawing and how bad it is. Um, so... This is basically a side view of what we're looking at, these tiles with sand in between and some kind of space in the middle. Here's a top view of it, these sort of concentric tiles being stacked on one another and having sand placed in the middle um, to create an oven. So it's not that it is one, you know, when we say an oven today, you imagine like a box, like some solid contained thing. Um, this is not that. So they're having a debate about whether this thing that is sort of this oven that's built in segments uh, it can be clean or unclean. What's the kosher deal with it, essentially? So we're really dealing in fairly mundane, I don't know, boring 
question of Jewish law about the kosher characteristics of this uh, tiled oven. Yeah. Who are the sages? Excellent. Sages, the Rabbanim. We're talking about the uh, the rabbis of antiquity, sort of the body politic. As I mentioned, this is the Talmud. Uh, this is an elite and elitist project. They are pretty separate from Amcha, from the people of Israel a lot of times. And it's not clear that the Talmud was, first of all, uh, ever meant to be accessible to the people. So this is very much like, you can imagine a whole bunch of congressmen or something debating some measure behind closed doors. Um, but we do have, this is the elite of the of the society. Were they the ones called Navi? Uh, did that make them the sage or no, that was... Sorry, say again? There, there was a title. Uh, Nasi? Nasi, sorry. Nasi, okay, so that title, whoever is the head of them gets the title of Nasi. Okay. It's, uh, it literally means uh, prince in sort of uh, Mishnaic Hebrew, so Yudah Nasi, Judah, the Rabbi Judah, the uh, the prince, yeah. Nasi today in contemporary Hebrew gets used for uh, president. Um, so Nasi is the head of the whole thing. That's different from, this is sort of the sages are the whole group of them together. So, yeah. Are they like, is, does Eliezer have a school and they have a school and that's why they're in opposition to Eliezer? Are they going to be in opposition to anything? So they're probably all within the same school. This debate is probably happening within the context of a single Beit Midrash with all of these rabbis all gathered around. Um, How many typically? That's really hard to say. I don't know that we have solid numbers on how many Rabbanim would have been in the Beit Midrash at any time. This is such ancient history that it's a little tricky to reconstruct. Um, I couldn't give you a good answer for that, actually. That's a great question. Um, yeah? I'm thinking about my mother throwing the kosher salt in the oven. I'm just wondering if, there's, if it has anything to do with this. In as much as it is dealing with um, kashrut and ovens, yes, <laughs> is what I would say. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. All right, yeah. So the sages disagreed with Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer seems to say that the only thing that's making it kosher is if you cut an oven into tiles and place sand between. That's what makes it kosher. But sages just disagreed with him. They didn't say what they thought made it kosher. No, they're not laying, this is the interesting part, a lot of times, and this is another good point for me to make about Talmud, the reason the Talmud is the longest written work in the ancient world by about four times is that it preserves all the dissenting opinions. It doesn't just say here's the decision, it records and preserves everybody who disagreed with it. So that's sort of what we're seeing here. When they really care about the law or the legal piece of it, they will go into their reasoning. They don't seem to go that route here. So it seems that whatever's going on here about the kashrut of this oven well, you're gonna. You've read the story. You know that that's not ultimately the most important thing here. So, but you're correct. Rabbi Eliezer is dissenting, saying that it's cool. The sages say it's not cool. Other questions before we continue on. All right, a brave volunteer to uh, bring us to the end of this uh, paragraph. Rabbi Eliezer declared it clean, and the sages declared it unclean. And this was the oven of Achnai. Why the oven of Achnai? said Rob Judah in Samuel's name, it means that they encompassed it with an argument as a snake and proved it unfair. Okay, so you remember how I talked about the dynasties here earlier when I was talking about the, each one coming from someone else? We see it right here, said Rob Judah in Shmuel's name. We're seeing them sort of establish lineage 
and um, authority in the way that they're talking about it. Now, this whole Achnai thing, um, that that's this, uh, I believe that's Aramaic word for a snake, and two things. One, yes, they encircled it with arguments, kind of like you could imagine a boa constrictor wrapping up its prey, but if you look at that side view thing, it also kind of looks like a coiled snake. Um, so the snake oven in that sense. Yeah? Question on this. Yes? Is the Talmud is very, very careful to preserve descending facts. In this case, they exclusively preserve the descending facts and do not give us any of the actual argumentation of the majority, of the winning side. Right. So... I understand that that's sort of because later in you'll understand like that this is less about the actual kosher rulings over this oven and more about how argumentation is done. But I still think it's very, very interesting that they that they basically thought that it was irrelevant why this actually was unclean. Simply, it's enough to say the sages said it is unclean. So we're going to get back to this point in the second to last paragraph. You're absolutely right. Um, hold down to that because we're going to get to that. That's really crucial. Other questions about what we've seen so far? Just this first paragraph. All right. So can we get a brave volunteer for the second paragraph? It has been taught that on that day, Rabbi Elazar brought forward every imaginable argument, but they did not accept them. He said then, if the halakha agrees with me, let this carrot tree prove it. Instantly, the carrot tree was uprooted 100 cubits out of its place, <laughs> okay, we're back to the orality of the thing, that this originally was a story that a bunch of people were sitting around telling to one another, uh, that it it sounds like a campfire legend or something like that. Some say 100, others say 400. Well, um, we do have that. And does it make a big difference? Not real. Well, let me put it like this. If the carob tree is uprooting itself and walking down the sidewalk... <laughs> Is the most important thing how far it walked? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It depends on whether it's you or the carob tree deciding it. I guess it depends on whether it made it to where it was walking to. So other questions about this uh, section we have. We get a shift here. Rabbi Eliezer brings forward every possible argument, but they don't accept it. He hits the wall. And so suddenly he changes gears. If the halakha agrees with me. Let this carob tree prove it. Halakha being this catch-all word for Jewish law. It's a path that means like it's a word that means the path or the way. Um, even to this day, when you talk about contemporary Jewish law, you talk about what does the halakha say on it. Some of you who come out of more uh, Yiddish kinds of backgrounds might have heard it as halakha um, in parts of New York. Yeah. This is the old uh, appeal to authority thing. Mm-hmm. that uh, we see in politics all the time. Say more. If, if so-and-so said it, it has to be like that. Okay. Republicans will say that about Reagan. You know, if Reagan said it, then that's our Bible. Uh, and that's what they're saying here, you know. If, if, you know if, if this guy has no arguments that can convince anybody, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's resorting to uh, desperation. He is resorting to desperation. That's right. Yeah, go ahead. I, from my study in philosophy, we use the appellation to a higher authority, the appeal to a higher authority, as a very valid form of argumentation. Because if there is somebody who is truly an expert in something, who is agreed upon by their field to be an expert, I would rather trust them than some guy off the street. If I ask somebody what kind of tree this is, and they say it's an elm tree, and then I go to a botanist and say the bot for the botanist, 
what trees is it? He says an oak. I don't care if there's a hundred, you know, people on the street telling me it's an elm. If the botanist tells me it's an oak, I'm going to appeal to the authority in this case. And if the halakha is like an actual, like, living, almost organic entity, it should be the, it should know more about what it is than other people. So what's remarkable, I'm just going to editorialize for a moment. You're hearing Rabbi Nick Renner. This is what's cool about turning and returning to these stories, is that they take on very different valences when you read them a few years after you last did. We last read this about four years ago. Reading this now, in a moment where there is a sort of populist streak within our political discourse and a certain kind of suspicion toward experts within a lot of our broader discourse, this takes on a very different valence than it would have back in 2014. I'll put it like that. And so this is part of at least what to me is very powerful about these stories. Yeah. Well, to me it also takes on a very different valence, which is the old magician situation Mm -hmm. in the Torah. Uh, You know, magicians could pull off this and that and the other, but, you know, and and Aaron was doing the same sort of thing as the magicians, and how did you know? Well, finally, maybe he pulled off one that was too good to be true, but Mm -hmm. it just sort of reminds me of of, of that situation that you maybe got to be a little careful about these supposed magic tricks. The Torah and Tanakh don't tell us that magic doesn't work. They tell you not to do it. It's a very different thing than saying necromancy doesn't work. They tell you, there be dragons. That is a very dangerous thing you are messing with here. And there's actually another story of Rabbi Eliezer when he uses some kind of conjuration to... I don't know, make like a field of cucumbers or something like that. And uh, he is reproached by another one of the sages saying, you're playing with fire. You're doing this in ways that you probably shouldn't. Um, so there's a tension here. Some of these Rabbanim are capable of uh, wild and I suppose supernatural is not quite the right word, but using uh, their connection to the divine to work wonders in the world. Um, but it's a dangerous thing, clearly. Other uh, questions about what we've seen so far? Yeah, Mickey. We we learn a lot today Mm -hmm. from uh, example. Eliezer uh, had his opinion, and the the sages, which means like majority, have their opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the majority generally rules, but the minority also has. It's value because sometimes the majority becomes the minority. So this majority-minority tension. Yeah, there there is a democratic quality to what goes on with the sages in terms of inclining after the majority, but it's instructive that they don't erase the uh, dissenting opinions, that they take the minority opinions and they keep them right next to them. They preserve them even if they go a different way. So that's one way that they hold that tension, but I think you're right to uplift that tension. Yeah? Well, in the context of the story <clears throat> does the carob tree have a will of its own or is it being directed from heaven or I mean jumping ahead mm-hmm. you, know, you can see that it's the latter but um, is it was that generally accepted that it, it was directed by heaven 
So I would first say that the carob tree probably didn't do this of its own volition. I would second say that from a theological standpoint, the wondrous things that happen don't happen absent God. Um, it's not like somebody has sorcery powers that aren't at, at least somewhat coming from divine authority. There's not an idea, because then you get into the whole uh, thin ice of, well, is there a second God granting the power to do this stuff? So clearly these powers must come on some level from God, but are they the will of God? Mm, I don't know. That's a good question here. So, which is all a long-winded way of saying that it's murky. Um, you're asking the right question, but it's elusive. Um, was there another hand? So let's keep going a little bit. Let's see what unfolds. Who wants to read that third paragraph? No, no fruit can be brought from a carob tree, they retorted. Again, he said to them, if the halha agrees with me, let this stream of water prove it. At this, the stream of water flowed backwards. No proof can be brought from a stream of water, they rejoined. Okay, this is a little more straightforward. We're seeing the same trick just on another natural phenomenon, essentially. Um, for those of you who have spent time in Israel and gotten to see, I don't know, Caesarea and some of these old Roman ruins, um, there are these aqueducts that still remain. So you can just sort of imagine in your mind's eye, what would it look like for suddenly this giant Roman aqueduct to just flow backwards? Um, any questions on this part? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, they don't it, they don't see it as proof, mm -hmm. and yet they see what has happened. It's like not believing a fact. <laughs> it's not believing a fact. It's an interesting way to parse it. So, because he's saying, let this serve as a proof. If the halakha agrees with me, watch this. The thing is, that's interesting, and this uh, gets back to Abe's point as well, um, he's not arguing, um, there's no merit to that argument. It's not, it's not logical or rational. He's just saying, I'm right, and let these wondrous things prove me right. And they're saying, essentially, that that's not how the game is played. Um, that doesn't give you mathematical proof in the same way. You're do performing these tricks and whatever, but those... Those don't speak to the quality or characteristics of this oven with the sand between the tiles, etc., etc., etc. Seems to be their counter-argument. Two points. <laughs> where we've gone to so far in the story. Yeah. Um, I wonder also if there's maybe not some distrust of Eliezer's <coughs> methods because he has shown his um, proclivity towards these tricks and these magics uh, before that... that you know, the, the rabbis might be thinking he's saying that Halakha is agreeing with him, but he also is just performing these tricks and these acts himself, and is just sort of doing it for a dramatic effect. Like, we, they don't have a, maybe a necessarily a knowledge that this actually is coming from this, like, metaphysical force of law. So, at this point in the story, I think you're right. The rabbis could very credibly be saying Look, this guy does all kinds of weird magic and stuff like that. That doesn't mean that the halakha that he um, that he poskins is correct in that way. We're going to get some degree of clarity a little later in the story, but I think certainly at this point that's a fair point that they could be saying that what he, he just makes the water run backwards because he thinks it's funny. There's, this has nothing to do with halakha. This isn't. It's not like gravity is saying that halakha is right. 
Um, so yeah, you could you could absolutely make that argument. Yeah, go ahead, Susan. Well, it just crossed my mind, which it never has, and I've read this story many times, that neither of them actually address what the halakha is. So right. They're saying it, but it agrees with me. But what is what is the halakha that they're specifically discussing? And you know that just seems odd that they completely abandon that point and mm-hmm. go to whether you know. Again, I think that we've gotten to the point where the halakha in this particular is case about yeah. That's right. About whether or not the oven with these tiles that sort of coil together with the sand, putting it together, whether or not this thing is clean or unclean or whatever its halachic status is, doesn't matter anymore, I think is where we are with it. Exactly. Exactly. We've we've crossed that bridge. Any other questions about where we are right now with this? All right. What brave volunteer wants to read the fourth paragraph? Again, you're... If the halakha agrees with me, let the walls of the Beit Midrash prove it. And instantly the walls began to tilt. But Rabbi Joshua rebuked them, saying, When scholars are engaged in a halakhic dispute, what right do you have to interfere? (laughs) Thus they did not fall in honor of Rabbi Joshua, nor did they return upright in honor of Rabbi Eliezer. To this day, they are still tilted. <laughs> Tom made the, asked me uh, a few minutes ago, well, why aren't the walls in here tilted? <laughs> Good question. Um, did you find some tilting there, Grant? <laughs> you know what? Thank God for the architecture of this building with its uh, angles and peculiar uh, layout and such. Thank God for it. We have a bait midrash where the walls are tilted, are inclined, uh, out of... Not to disrespect either Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Yoshua. Baruch Hashem, thank sure. God. Questions about this part, yeah? Well, did you just read in the paper that the architect passed away last month? Oh. Or two weeks ago, Rabbi Richard Meyer? Richard Meyer was Yeah, that might be another uh, story. <laughs> but he was the architect at... Uh, this building. Richard Weinstein, I think? Weinstein. Weinstein. Interesting. Yes. May his memory be for a blessing. Amen. Other questions? Could be. I'll take it. Huh. I hadn't heard that before. That's interesting. Interesting. The things one learns. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's really funny that the, the, the <laughs> rabbi turns to the bed bed direction and says, you don't have the right to interfere in this. You're just, you're just a school. You're just walls. What do you have to say about it? Yeah, exactly. You have no right here. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things here is that Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer, I was looking up a little bit about the two of them before, they were both students from the same school. They shared the same master. They both come from a guy named Yohanan ben Zakkai, who, does anybody remember that series we read of the escape from Jerusalem, where they managed to escape through the Roman siege and all of that? They, they were the ones who were involved in smuggling Yohanan ben Zakkai out of Jerusalem. That's in a box, that's right, pretending he was dead, um, to save the rabbinic project from the Romans who are closing in on the Jewish zealots, the Sicarii getting ready to kill everyone. So it's interesting that these two guys, who were the two students of Yohanan ben Zakkai, who preserved the rabbinic project through their own heroism, are the two who were 
going up against one another in this story. Other questions? This story was that first bit of the story that that shows, that maybe suggests more heavily to the other rabbis that this is not just Eliezer using his magic, that that now that his his miracles are being contested Mm -hmm. by the other rabbis, that this is coming from an external source. Right. And that external source seems to be listening to both of them. Uh, It's not that Rabbi Eliezer is the only one wielding it, too. That's correct. Um, Yeah, go ahead. That is really cool. I've never noticed that before. I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Um, and it makes me imagine, like, what if we in our contemporary world allowed spaces to mediate in that same way? What if the Capitol building could mediate, you know, for Congress on some level? It's sort of a, it's a fascinating supposition to imagine that the space itself is the honest broker in the thing, you know, which is almost like antithetical to like you know what we imagine with like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for instance, where the space itself is the arena of you know what is being contested in that way. So to imagine that the space is the neutral party, I think, is a really interesting inversion of a lot of what we might think about as conflict. Yeah, the house does lean left and right. Um, Mm-hmm. With the capital and so on. The space is the same. Mm-hmm. It's the people in it that change. That's right. And, you know, there was a time when they had respect for the institutions, which is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And now they really don't. So maybe it's a question of you would be remiss in hoping for the space to be the honest broker when, in fact, the people themselves have to uh, be the ones to negotiate and to be fair to one another. That's an interesting. Yeah, that's for sure. Other questions about this uh, this section? All right, let's continue onward. Uh, again, he said to them, if the Halakha agrees with me, let it be proven from heaven. Suddenly, Lachal said, why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the Halakha agrees with him? But Rabbi Joshua rose and exclaimed, it is not in heaven. Okay, we'll stop there. That's enough for a moment. Um, I'll just translate that. It is not in heaven because it's so resonant in the Hebrew. Lo, for negative, it is not. Bashamayim, in the heavens, he. It is not in heaven. And that particular uh, citation refers to Torah itself, that the Torah is not in heaven. Lo, Bashamayim, he. That she, the Torah, is not in heaven. Questions about this paragraph. This is where the whole thing kind of starts to come together. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a word about halakha, rabbinic law. Yeah. Well, there's two types of law. One is uh, halakha, rabbinic law, and the other is minhag. Um, okay. I, I went into a um, uh, bookstore. I knew the. I had a question. I knew the answer. Uh, I asked the rabbi, "When you put on tefillin, do you do this way or do you do this way?" And his answer was, "This is what we do." 
Yep. Mm-hmm. So Mickey is pointing out that there are a number of different ways that we translate sort of standards of behavior. Halakha is the firmest of it, which is law. Um, then we have minhag, which is custom. We have masoret, which is tradition. Um, an interesting one that always seems to surprise people. Kippah, wearing a kippah, this is not halakha. There is no halakha on kippah. Kippah is strictly minhag, it is customary. Um, tzitzit on talit, that is halakha. Um, so different things carry different weights to them within the context of this whole thing. Um, so you're right to point out that, yes, within the rabbinic project, there are a number of different sort of tiers of it, and we are here dealing in the tier of halakha more firmly. Um, a bot kol. Just a word on that. What a lovely poetic way of saying, like, the voice of God came down, the daughter of a voice. It sounds to me like this echo that kind of reverberates down. Because, again, in the rabbinic time, bot kol is not common. That doesn't happen every day. Um, and this is even after the time of, say, the prophets, where they're not hearing God talking to them, like God doesn't appear and address all the people. Not everybody gets to hear that. And so this idea that God's voice actually becomes part of the conversation here is pretty extraordinary. Um, I don't want to lose sight of that. And it's this beautiful sort of poetic framing of that voice that we get here in Talmud. So this voice comes down and says on high, why are you arguing with Rabbi Eliezer? And seeing that in, that all matters of the halacha, in all matters the halacha agrees with him. And Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Yoshua, says to God, no, the Torah is not in heaven. He quotes God's own writing to tell God, butt out. Questions about this? Yeah. Well, I forgot the context of that quote from Torah, but I always remember it. Because it, uh, because the Torah has it both ways in a lot yes. of things, including <laughs> this sort of subject many mm-hmm. times. You know, you think, oh, you want to know the answer. Mm-hmm. You, you go to God, you go to heaven, the, the answer is there. But whatever that context was, which I've forgotten mm-hmm. for this quote, it was very much um, a, a, a message to the people that <laughs> if you think the answer to whatever that is is up in heaven, not necessarily. Correct. That's absolutely right. We're, that was in Deuteronomy uh, 30.12. So this would have been toward the end of some of Moses' second telling of the law and proclaiming it to people. So the broader context, that's right, was saying to the people, look, you can't always be looking to heaven for your answers here. There has to be some kind of self-sufficiency uh, going on here, which is sort of the bigger tension with a lot of the Torah, certainly starting in Exodus all the way through, is that how much of it is going to be wonders that God works and miracles as we get from the Passover story this mighty hand and outstretched arm and how much of it is going to be the people pulling their own weight and figuring out how to make this stuff work in their lives and you're right the Torah has it both ways it does it isn't one or the other it's a constant tension through a lot of that Um, we're leaning pretty firmly in this text though in the direction of this really being in the hands of the people yeah so my, my thought on this a little bit is that, one, it takes a lot of chutzpah to just say to a heavenly voice, butt out of our conversation. <laughs> yes, but it does. It also sort of is, is a long, another step in a long line of tradition of, at this point in time, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, uh, not really doing what God says they should do or should have been doing 
stretching back to shortly after the foundation, I mean, before the foundation of Israel, of these, the, the kingdoms of Israel, and during that whole time, mm-hmm. there are, the history is a whole lot of missteps. And the prophets interceding and sort of trying to help fix these missteps along the way. But they never seem to work for very long until they sort of slide again. And then this is sort of a, a continuation of that where the, the rabbis, uh, Joshua and, and the rabbis agree with him saying, that maybe this isn't a mistake that where that they're not following letter to letter, word to word, God's commandments. That they have to live on their own because they don't have God there actively watching out for them the way he, the way God did in uh, like the Exodus, for example. The mm-hmm. Exodus, God very much intercedes and says, "This is how it's going to be," and actively saves the Israelites. Color of fire and, and all that stuff. And then later on, it's little nudges, or basically the best you can get is not killing everybody as a way of saving the Israelites, as some prophet interceding on on behalf of the people. Great. So I think you very beautifully uplifted sort of the tension when you said maybe we don't follow the word of God, like letter by letter, word by word, because we're the people and we have to be here and dealing with this. I think to a lot of the rabbinic imagination to say that we don't have to follow the word of God on some level, they would take that as heretical. But this is the tension here. Like, how far can you push this whole thing before you've crossed the line? Um, and that seems to be, it seems to me at least that they are negotiating this as we speak. Um, but that there's a bigger context too. Like, yes, there's God. Yes, there's the word of God, what it is they inherit. But... They take all of that, which is the Torah and the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and they use that as the basis for the creation of this rabbinic enterprise, which is what we're seeing here. And we're seeing them sort of negotiating what are going to be the boundaries around the rabbinic enterprise. They view themselves as very much anchored in Jewish tradition and God and the like, and they see themselves as this straight, neat uh, chain of transmission that comes from Mount Sinai and receiving the Torah. So they very much see themselves as in it, but that it's become their enterprise in a way. And so as they're in the midst of trying to figure out what this rabbinic enterprise is, here we're very much looking at the boundaries of it. Here we're looking at the edges of it. Um, what's in and what's out. And if you're talking about a conversation where what's in and what's out, what constitutes um, the proper functioning of the system versus what is a threat to the system, then what's at stake becomes the system itself. Other questions? So let's continue. Who wants to pick up the next little, uh, the next piece? What did he mean by this? What did he mean by this? Said Rabbi Jeremiah, since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, we pay no attention to a bot toll because you wrote in the Torah at Mount Sinai after the majority must one incline. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, we'll repeat again. What did he mean by this? It's not in heaven. They say, Rabbi Joshua stands up and tells the bat kol, lo he, this is not in heaven, but out. What did he mean by lo he, it's not in heaven? Rabbi Jeremiah says that what Rabbi Joshua meant was, quote, since the Torah was given to us at Mount Sinai, we don't listen to that voice because as you wrote in the Torah, you have to follow the majority rule. The divine voice doesn't get to veto the majority. 
is what they're saying because we have it written in the Torah. <laughs> you can see how the reasoning gets, gets a little uh, s- snake-like itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so this means they had guys like Jerry Falwell back then. <laughs> Say more. Which guy? Which guy are you accusing of uh, Falwellism here? Well, you know, anybody who says they hear the voice of God. Yeah. God hasn't spoken since Sinai. Yeah. Yeah, and what God said back at Sinai is you is this has to be a human conversation. This has to be a democratic conversation. There has to be a majority that you follow on some level. Yeah. You don't get to just claim the voice and then but, but have a dictatorship. There will always be charlatans that claim that they heard the voice. That certainly hasn't changed between, you know, now and then. Other questions about this piece? Yeah. We were discussing that the, the, the concept of the majority is always right. It's a truly terrifying thing. Yes. Because there are times in human history where that's been very, very useful. Mm-hmm. And there's times where that led to things like the Cultural Revolution right. in China, where, right. you know, books were being burned, scholars were being burned, things were, were well, being killed, uh, institutions of learning were being destroyed. History was set back in China a hundred years due to the concept of the majority is right. And, and it, it's terrifying because in my lifetime, and I'm fairly young, I have seen people who are scholars and who are experts go from being revered to the term elite being used as a negative. Mm-hmm. To the point where being educated, where walking in saying, I have a PhD, somehow makes you an enemy to the, to the public, to the American people. That this, this like cult of ignorance that's being worshipped widely across the country. And it's terrifying because I have to live in this country for the next... 60 to 70 years. You and me both. <laughs> you know, I mean, some maybe not, they'll have to deal with it as long. But, but <laughs> <laughs> So, majority rule does not equal Jeffersonian democracy with protections for the minorities and the like. Yeah. Um, point well made, yeah. So this is written, so the, the, the common is, is, uh, is post-destruction t- 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 of the temple. Correct. The... T- Destruction of the temple was was caused by the sense of the Jewish people and infighting. I'm generalizing, but so is it possible that 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 this story in the Talmud general is 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 giving us a set of rules that that we should live by and so that we don't fight amongst ourselves or break ourselves up? So Grant makes a really important point here, which is that, look, if you want to know why the temple and the priesthood and all that stuff was destroyed, you can go get historical you know, reasons and studies and archaeological stuff and whatever. If you ask the rabbis why the temple was destroyed, they say it very, clean, very plainly and cleanly in two words, sinat chinam, free hatred. They believe that it wasn't that some imperial external power came from without and leveled them, which historically we know happened. They actually say no, it was because we had devolved into this group of people who were all fighting and struggling and vying for power, and nobody was part of, there wasn't a sense of the same peoplehood anymore. If you all remember that cycle of stories about the destruction of Jerusalem, that's all about these factions of Jews, the armed faction who were the extremists wanting to burn their supplies to force the people to fight the Romans versus the rabbis who wanted some kind of, wanted to try and preserve what they had left of it and were terrified of the violence of it. The whole thing broke down. And 
As I said earlier, this is a moment of creativity and of generativity. They're picking up the pieces, sifting through the ashes of the destruction of Jerusalem to try and create a Jewish people and a relationship with God and some kind of structure of communal authority. Rabbi wasn't a thing back when... Technically, it was sort of around, but it wasn't the center of communal authority during the temple. Those were the Kohanim. Those were the priests. Um, so they're really trying to, out of whole cloth, figure out how they're going to be a people in the wake of that destruction. So when I talk about that challenging uh, this peace, that uh, sort of violating the majority rule, and doing so through these supernatural means... Um, begins to threaten the entire project, it's a really big project that they see it as threatening. Um, this project of trying to put back together that which has been shattered, um, to, they're essentially creating the Jewish people here, that if they understand Rabbi Eliezer as somehow threatening that project, I can understand why they would take it poorly. Um, you make a good point about the danger of majority rule, and... The context is also important, that they're coming out of this place of Mishnaic Judaism where there was not Judaism. There were Judaisms. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, the Dead Sea cult. And there were the Sicarii, the armed extremists. And there were the early Christians. There were all of these different people all sort of claiming the mantle of this. And most of them got destroyed or they became something else like the Christians. Um, so in trying to put together some kind of a Jewish project here, the majority thing gets really important here. And having some kind of sense of buy-in from a majority of the people toward a decision, um, it takes on a certain gravity even when it is oppressive in a certain sense. Other questions? Yeah. Eliezer never says the Holocaust reason. He says if the Holocaust reason let this happen. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until the the, um, the the voice of God that they that we know that the Holocaust does agree with him. Interesting. So so in this case the majority uh, and I wonder what, what the ultra orthodox rabbis today would make of it. The majority were saying, and eh, we disagree with the Holocaust. What if the halakha is wrong? It, what if their halakhic decision is wrong? Yeah, but I mean, I just thought it was interesting that that that, that it, 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 it's that voice that voice that says that all matters of the halakha agree with him. Eliezer doesn't actually say that. He just says if it does. He's asking questions in this way. That's true, um, but this the implication seems to be that. Why are you disputing with Rabbi Eliezer if he's always right about the halakha? It seems that they believe that their project and their process by which their project operates, the rabbinic project, is more important than actually getting the correct uh, answer to the halakhic question. Yeah. So if, uh, you know, at this point, it is not in heaven, the, the law is not in heaven, that law is with the rabbi, can their interpretation of the law actually be wrong? Or, or is whatever they agree is the interpretation of the law correct? Because it, law is not law is not in and of itself sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. Because laws change constantly. Laws that were in effect for 1,500 years are now considered horrific. And you know, you could 
burn a witch for most of human history. You try burning a witch today, and people are going to say, hey, that's a really awful, horrible, hideous thing you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, the law agreed with me for 17, 18, 2,500 years. Mm -hmm. So the law itself doesn't... The rabbis seem to be saying that the law is what we make it. Sort of what the Supreme Court says. The, the Constitution is what we make it. Mm-hmm. Um, was, a, was a famous quote of, from, from Supreme Court uh, justice. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of thing where, where Eliezer might be correct in his strict interpretation of the law vis-a-vis the law, but mm-hmm. that's not relevant to what the Hebrew people are doing. The Hebrew people need the law as it is for them today, or in right. this case, you know, 1,600 years ago. So the one mitigating factor, and this is what makes halakha in our era so difficult, is um, you said the law is not sacrosanct. For them it is. For them it is, yeah. For them it is, and this is part of what's challenging, is that they are constructing these legal arguments and this legal reasoning, and it's evolving and changing, and they also want to say that this is the lineage that comes directly from Mount Sinai, and therefore it has the it has divine authority, and it's imbued with it in a way. They have it both ways, essentially. Yeah, they've, they've already done away with, sacri- with sacrifice, and right. that is, hal- is halakha. So they can say that sacrifice no longer needs to be observed. We have alternatives to sacrifice, so they're okay with breaking those portions of the law. How far are they willing to go with this mutability of law? Yes, that is one of the big questions. I always think about this as an example, is that in the Torah, it tells us to wipe out Amalek, anywhere we find them, to destroy them, kill their men, women, children, burn their stuff, kill all of Amalek every time we see them. The rabbis... Uh, they say that, look, in the year 722 BCE, the Syrians came and invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and shifted populations around, and therefore we can't really know who is and isn't Amalek because of all these shifting peoples around in circles, and therefore the Amalek thing doesn't count anymore. They're very clever about it when they want out of some kind of injunction or prohibition. Um, but the question is, how far can you push it? Uh, and I think that remains a question. I'll say this as an editorial note. I'm not not an orthodox rabbi because I'm lazy. I'm not an orthodox rabbi because I don't believe the halachic project is functioning anymore the way that it did for centuries and the way that I think it would need to to be a responsive, dynamic, and vibrant piece of Jewish life looking forward. I think there are historical reasons for that, starting in the 1800s in particular, that it became static and ossified in ways that stopped responding to Jewish communal need in ways that it used to. That's just me. You can disagree with me. I mean, that's all, that's all good. We have, you know, machlokot. We have disagreements for the sake of heaven. But um, I think we're in an era in which there are... There are serious issues with the halachic system and questions of can it change and evolve in ways that it would need to to remain relevant and dynamic for the Jewish project. Yeah. There was just an article in the, uh, this week's the Jewish Journal mm-hmm. about that a reformed rabbi discusses um, halakha with, um, with, the, uh, with the Orthodox. Is that Sarah Basson? Rabbi Sarah Basson? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she's great. There was an Orthodox authority in the 1800s named the Khatam Sofer who said that the law came from Mount Sinai and every generation that's 
new is one more generation away from Mount Sinai. Therefore, every generation has less authority than the generation that came before it to change or innovate or do anything new within a legal context. And that is, I believe, historically in response to the emergence of Reform Judaism and changes in Judaism. We get this sort of reactivity toward a certain kind of... Uh, yeah, I'll say orthodoxy. I would even take that a step further and say fundamentalism. Um, to say that no gener each generation has less ability to make anything new than the generation that came before it. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, this is kind of not about that, but I read somewhere that the Romans did not want to destroy the temple, but the ra they just wanted more taxes, and the rabbis gave them such terrible time that they had no choice. So, historically it's a lot more complicated than that because it wasn't just the rabbis. There were lots of different factions of Jews doing different things at different yeah. points and what have you. Um, would the Romans have been satisfied with a different uh, economic agreement? Maybe. It's sort of a counterfactual historical conversation to have, and it's interesting to have too, but it's it would be difficult to conclusively say one way or the other. They just wanted more taxes. Like I said, I, it's a complicated thing because the Jewish communities also didn't fit culturally into Roman expectations. The Romans, and this goes back to the Greeks with Alexander the Great, wanted to conquer areas and just stick whatever gods are there into the pantheon with the rest of everybody else they conquered. And that worked in most places they went, but it didn't work with the Jews, who said, no, our god doesn't go in the cabinet with the rest of the pantheon. Our god is the one true god. And that led to a lot of unrest. That's the Hanukkah story right there. So it's cultural, it's theological, it's economic, it's all those things. I'm going to read the last uh, little portion here. Rabbi Nathan met Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. We remember Elijah. He's the guy who gets to go back and forth between heaven and the people. And he asked him, what did the Blessed Holy One do in that hour? He replied, he laughed saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. God, on some level, seems to be siding with the majority. Even after Rabbi Yoshua told him to butt out, Rabbi Yoshua gave him this proof text and gave him his textual evidence from the Torah, and God says, yeah, not bad. Point those guys. Um, it's a remarkable thing that God laughs and says, my children have defeated me. Uh, I've heard this argued, I've heard this sort of uh, portrayed a couple of different ways. What's going to come next in the story, for those who remember, is a whole bunch of political unrest that ends with the death of the patriarch. Um, so you could read God as laughing in a sinister sort of way, saying, my children have defeated me. Just wait and let them see. Or, there's another way to read this, and they're both valid because, again, we don't have greater textual evidence, so bring your own movie version to it. Or you can hear God laughing with a certain kind of joy that uh, that sort of is his sanction of the rabbinic project. He's saying, look at how far they've come, and look at what mastery they have of my Torah, that they can even argue with my divine voice about what it is they should be doing. That's cool. How amazing is that to see this people who he's been shepherding along ever since the Exodus, redeeming them from slavery, they have this kind of mastery of what's holy and what's sacred in God's Torah in the world. God, you can imagine, is a delighted parent in this case, laughing with joy at having seen this pan out. Questions, thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. That God is this all-powerful, is omniscient, omnipotent, timeless being. 
who keeps losing arguments with Jews. <laughs> I know that we are contentious people and we love arguing. It's in our DNA. You can't take the argument out of a Jew. But to continuously win arguments with a supreme being that created all of everything and knows all of everything and can control all of everything, but keeps getting talked out of things by prophets, by Moses, Abraham, Abraham here. I mean, it, it seems like it's the the stories are a dime a dozen where God is shown to be maybe say it wrong in a certain case, and that doesn't really jive with me as far as the, the traditional orthodox view of this omnipotent all-being. I'm reminded of that story I keep coming back to of Rabbi Yishmael, who on Yom Kippur goes into the Holy of Holies in the Great Temple and is about to say the name of God, and God stops him and says, Rabbi Yishmael, offer me a blessing, my child. And Rabbi Yishmael says, okay, God, I bless you that your mercy would outweigh your justice. That that's the blessing that Rabbi Ishmael offers to God. And so then the rabbis go from that and they say, does God ever pray? Because, you know, they're the rabbis and they figure God is doing whatever it is they're doing and we're made with Selim Elohim and the image of God and all of that. We have this commonality with God. The rabbis say, yeah, God does pray. God prays that God's mercy outweighs God's justice. It seems that here we have a God who has different choices that God can make, can go down different roads, and that wouldn't it be great if God inclined toward kindness rather than the strictest application of justice in that sense? It's an interesting theological turn, but also from the Talmud. Yeah? Seems like um, what's at issue is that creation is a partnership. Yes. So I would, and I want to return to that tension that we see all through the Torah. How much of it is God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, and how much of it is the people, the person who has to take that first step into the Red Sea before it splits? Then people have to take initiative. That as soon as the people get out of Egypt and, and, and enslavement and all of that, God says to Moses, set up courts for justice to try people. That's like the first thing that happens when they get out is God saying that, look, I'm not going to be able to judge all of it for you. People are going to have to be able to judge for themselves. It's absolutely a partnership here. Um, I think that runs through the whole thing. I think that's, that's, that sounds right to me. I, the reason I keep bringing this story up and the reason I keep turning and returning to it, I learned it for the first time probably when I was 15, and I come back to it every few years or so um, because it has different things to tell me at different times. Um, this whole business of loba shamayim he, it is not in heaven. This idea that Torah is not something on high, dusty, monolithic tome that's out there for the rabbis to sort of keep, be the keepers of in some repository. That it's not there, that it's here, it's every one of us. That we are the inheritors of this project, of the rabbinic project, um, which is a project of creation. It's a project of, as I said, generativity. Um, it's a project of figuring out and determining what is Judaism going to be? What's it going to look like? It's part of what it means to be Reconstructionist Jews is to uh, be partners with one another in this project of determining not just what a synagogue is going to look like right now or a community or what some ritual piece is, is going to be or not be, but what does that mean for Judaism for the next century, for the next 500 years? Uh, again, this was finished 1,500 years ago just about. 
And Loba Shemaim He, it's not some closed, dusty, monolithic tome. This belongs to each and every one of you. It's not mine. It's not that I'm the keeper of this. This is yours. Judaism is yours. All of these texts, all of these traditions, they belong to each and every one of you. And we are all in this sense, like you were saying, it's not just God. It's not just the authorities. It's not just the rabbis. We're all partners in figuring out what Judaism is today and what it's going to be in the centuries and millennia to come. That all of you are part of this Talmudic project day in and day out. Whether or not you're reading these texts or not, we're all part of this project together. That's why this, to me, is the text to turn and return to. Lo he. It's not in heaven. It's not far away. It's not some distant thing. It's it's ours, and it belongs to us. Um, and with that, I'm going to end in a peculiar way, because usually this is how you end. When you're reading books of Torah, for instance, and you finish the book of Genesis or something like that, and you're reading, there is a traditional ending, a traditional formulation, you say, which is chazak, chazak, venit chazek, um, from strength to strength, and so may you be strengthened. This is the end of Tales of the Talmud at KI with Rabbi Nick Renner, but this isn't the end of the journey, and it's not the end of learning this, and it's not the end of this partnership that we're all in, in terms of determining and ascertaining and reaching toward that vision of a Jewish future that we share. So thank you all for being fellow travelers in that journey for four years.